Hey, we are in John chapter 10, and uh, we're back in the book of John. If you've not been with us for very long, um, this is going to be a series that will continue on. We'll take a break for Advent, and then we'll pick it back up in the new year, of course. And this will take us all the way through Eastertide of next year. And so Eastertide is that season after Easter. We'll be in the book of John for quite a long time going forward. And so uh, we jump back into the book of John, and let me refresh you on what John himself says is the purpose of the book of John. He wrote it out actually in the very end of the book of John, John chapter 20, verse 31, which says this, all these things, look, there could be a mountain of books that could be written about really all the things that Jesus did. But these things right here in this book, in the book of John, these were written, it says in verse 31 of chapter 20, these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So everything that's written in the book of John is so that we may believe the true identity of the Son of God is Jesus, and that by believing, we will have life. So this passage about this good shepherd, this tells us something about the identity of Jesus and the life that we can have in him. Now, usually I have some sort of uh, I don't know, antidote or some sort of story to kind of get us into this passage. And I, I'll just be really frank with you. I didn't have the energy to do that today. Uh, there's a lot in this passage. And I, the reason why there's a lot in this passage is because I've actually got to go back about a month or two and recap John chapter nine for us. Because John 10 happens right in the midst of a conversation that Jesus starts to have in the temple with the Pharisees at the end of John nine, which Chris Kipp, the guy that we just prayed for, Planting Renaissance Church right there in downtown Richmond, right down the road. He preached on John 9. You guys remember that? You guys are like, oh yeah, I'm totally, it's just very clear. I know exactly what it was about. It's fantastic. Someone told me I was very sarcastic today, so you're gonna have to forgive me in advance. <laughs> Whatever's about to happen. I can't control it, we're just gonna roll with it. So, Having said that, we're jumping back in, but let's, let's jump into a little bit of the background of John 10. We're gonna misunderstand John 10 if we don't first recap John 9. So let's recap it. If we go back and we read through it, which would be a little bit of time, uh, we'll instead just kind of go through it story form, right? So basically what we find is that Jesus uh, heals a man that was born blind in the temple on the Sabbath. He was born blind. The disciples asked Jesus, why is this man blind? Is it his sin? Or is it the sin of his parents? They, they're, they're making this false connection between suffering and sin. And Jesus says, no, 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 it's not because of sin. It's because I want to display the works of God in this man. What great news there is in John 9 that sometimes our suffering are to display, put on blast the works of God. We need to be reminded of that as we get into John 10 because there's gonna be a bit of suffering as we go through it. So Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath. This rouses the Pharisees' anger. The Pharisees then threaten to kick this family out of the, the synagogue. And so they use their power. They use their, the law, something that was given in good faith to the people. And they use the law to kick the man out of of the temple. I want you to realize something when they do this. Number one, they threaten his family, and his family are so afraid of what's going on that they go, hey, he's of age, ask him. AKA, sorry dude, you're gonna take the hit on this one. And here's the reason why. So according to the law, Old Testament law in Leviticus, if you were blind or lame, you could not be a priest. 
what we find is that you could not be a priest in the law, and by the time of David, he would make note in 2 Samuel that if you were blind or lame, you couldn't even enter into the temple. So even by David's time, they were starting to add some things to the law so as to preserve the purity of Jerusalem. And they're doing the same thing here in John 9, and then again in 10. So they kick this man out, the man that had literally just been granted access to the temple for the first time in his life because he was no longer blind but could see, they go on and kick him out of the synagogue. And when they did that, they kicked him out, not just of like, so, so here's the reality, like there's no second synagogue of Jerusalem. There's just one place to worship for a Jew in any town. So there's no other place for that guy to go to worship in his town. There's no other place to bring sacrifice or to honor God. When they kick him out of the synagogue, they kick him out of the community of faith. He can't go to the local market and buy and sell. His children's education is now on the line if he had any. When he kick a family out of the synagogue, you are doing something major to generations, heaping shame upon them in a culture that is driven in honor and shame. Enter Jesus. And see, the thing is, why did they kick him out? Because they were asking him, they were questioning him, they were interrogating this man, and he kept just kind of going, hey, look, I don't know, all right? You guys keep thinking he's a demon, you guys keep thinking he's a sinner, but let me just show you what I know. And so let's just read a little bit of John 9. It's right there in, uh, in verses 31 through 34. This is what the man says. He, he comes to Jesus' defense. He says, look, we know that God does not uh, listen to sinners, But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. I'm the first one. You kidding me right now? You're gonna kick me out? This has never happened before. Verse 33. If this man, Jesus, if he were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus responds to all this, and he does not take it kindly. And his unkind response is this fuzzy passage that we've made it in John chapter 10 of the good shepherd, but there's so much going on in John 10 that I really had trouble trying to put it in bite-sized pieces for us because I li- I'm very linear in my thinking. I know you're shocked by that, but like I'm like one through 10 and just give me like that. Like just go through there and I'm good to go. Reasoning, let's just go through that. And Jesus does not do that. He says one thing and they get confused. And then he says another thing and then they're like, what? And then he goes down another route. And to follow all that is quite difficult in this passage. So for us, here's what I wanna do. I entitled my sermon today something very different. I would normally just put the good shepherd. Today, instead, I'm entitling the sermon answers to three questions that no one asked. Answers to three questions that no one asked. And the reason why I'm doing that is because Jesus is explaining who he is in a fashion that he is answering questions that they never ask him, but they need to be asking to him. But that he never, he, so he just, he just jumps to the point and he answers these questions that they're not asking. And so I would just say this, as we jump into this, this is Jesus' response to them kicking this guy out. Let me read, let me start in verse 35 and then we're gonna read to verse six of chapter 10. 
starting in 35 of chapter nine. Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, granted, this guy was blind. All he knew was the voice, the sound of the voice of Jesus. He had never laid his eyes on Jesus. So, do you believe in the Son of Man? Some strangers walking unto him. He starts to kind of recognize his voice, and the man answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, oh man, I could, I could go down for the count just thinking about this. Jesus said to him, you have seen him. You just heard him with your new eyes that I just made for you. You've seen him in the flesh. And it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, it is for judgment I came into this world. For those who do not see my face, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, oh, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep, to him the gatekeeper opens, and the sheep all they hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. But they know his voice. Stranger, they will not follow, but they will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of the strangers. And there's a break. It says, This figure of speech, John will tell us, Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So let's just break it down for all of us. What is he saying to them? And what is he saying to us? He is really basically saying to them, in the midst of their accusation to them, saying, oh, you think that we're blind? He goes, well, now that you say that you see, you're actually blind and your guilt remains, as if to say, yeah, and you think you know me. You think you know me. You've called me a blasphemer and a demon and a sinner. You think you know me, but instead, I've got something to tell you about me. So first question that I think he's answering that they're not asking is, is Jesus a stranger or a shepherd? Is Jesus a stranger or a shepherd? He, he juxtaposes these two things. In verse five, he says, a stranger they will not follow, but I'm a shepherd. So basically saying, hey, I haven't come into the temple just to cause a ruckus and a riot, I'm not just coming in here to cause trouble for y'all. Instead, if you look around, if you just go to the towns that I've visited, I have been gathering sheep all along. I've been opening my voice. I've been teaching in the plain air. If you want to know who I really am, I'm saying it to you right through the front door. You don't have to guess. You can look at the evidence of my life. You can look at the miracles that I've performed. I've just performed one in your midst and yet you deny me. But I am not a stranger, I am not a thief, I am not a robber. Instead, I am a shepherd. I use my voice, and my sheep have been coming to me all throughout Israel. If you know anything about the Pharisees, that was one of the main things that they felt threatened by with Jesus. But all of a sudden, his popularity began to grow, and they didn't have control over the crowds anymore. And so Jesus jumps in on this as a shepherd. And he paints this picture of this large sheep pen. 
And if we read the text carefully, what we see is that there are at least two, three, four families that are sharing a pen. And this was very commonplace back in the day. They would bring all their sheep into this pen overnight and then they would hire a gatekeeper. And the gatekeeper would keep watch over the sheep. And when he would keep watch over the sheep, how would he know if it was a stranger or a shepherd that would come to them? Well, the shepherd would just go to the entrance of the gate, would never have to get into the pen, but would just go, hey, Molly, hey, Bill, come on out. I don't know what you name your sheep, but I'm just envisioning Jesus saying, Molly and Bill. Hey, whatever their names are, come on out. And all of a sudden, they hear his voice, and they go, oh, yeah, that's my guy. And they come out towards the shepherd. You see, the thief and the robber, they sneak into the pen a different way. And when they get in, they, the, the sheep flee from that thief, that robber, that stranger. And so that thief, that robber, that stranger has to steal, has to go and maybe even beat down a sheep to grab one and take it away. And, and Jesus is going, that has not been my method at all. I only open my mouth and the sheep of Israel have been coming to me. You see, each shepherd would gather his sheep out of the sheepfold by simply calling his or her name of the sheep. He wouldn't go in and drive them out. He would draw them out. See, a stranger has to force the sheep to do what he wants, but a shepherd merely uses his voice. As you guys know, we're in the midst of a big transition in our family. My wife's gone back to work for the first time since Reese was born. Reese is 10. And so um, what that means is that like all of my family is here. My, my three kids go to school in this building. My wife teaches in this building. We live basically at Frost Elementary is what I'm trying to tell you. And so in doing that, um, like Moses comes, my four-year-old son, he's in this like pre-K program here. And at the end of every day, I come in and I usually just say his name. I go, Mo. And he goes, Daddy, puts his puzzle away and he's out the door. One day I snuck in this week and I just sat there and I observed he was going to the restroom, and he was washing his hands. He was doing all the things that the teacher was telling him. I was like, I wish this was that easy at home. <laughs> and I just watched, and the teacher's just letting me watch, and I just go like this, and I go, <clears throat> and he goes, Daddy! I want you to think about that. Because the other kids that aren't mine, I could clear my throat all day long, and they would not even look up from their puzzles. But when I'm ready to draw him out, all I had to do was go, <clears throat> You didn't have to say a name, didn't have to say a word, just had to make a noise with the tone of my voice and my son came running to me. That's the picture of John 10. That's the picture of a shepherd that merely uses his voice and says, now you come to me. There was an intimacy there. There was a trust in that voice. See, the sheep could then trust the shepherd, his character, to take them wherever he knew to go to find greener pastures, to feed them, to keep them safe, because they were his. That is the picture here. And if you drill down on the picture, what you'll start to see is that in verse four, look at what hearing his voice truly means. When he has brought out all his own, the shepherd, he goes before them. Look at that. He doesn't get behind them and drive them. Goes before them and draws them. And the sheep follow him. They know his voice. In next week's sermon, we'll pick this up in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
Hearing the voice of Jesus implicitly means obeying the words of Jesus. You cannot hear without following. It's never in the Bible. Matter of fact, he is explicitly saying, if you hear my voice, you will follow me if we are his sheep. And so the distinguishing mark of knowing Jesus as your shepherd is that you know his voice and you follow him. Not just knowing it, but following him. And so I ask you this question. Do you know the voice of your shepherd? Do you hear his voice? Do you know his word? And is that hearing evidenced by your following him like a son follows a father? When he calls you to do things that are uncomfortable, when he brings you to a place that's inconvenient, do you submit to him like a good shepherd? Or do you treat him like a stranger and wonder what he's up to? Will you both trust him to lead you to the green pasture and also occasionally cause you to submit to shearing? Both happen with being a sheep. And we trust our good shepherd to lead us along the way. If you've treated Jesus like a stranger, he is calling you back into the fold. Just like we just sang, in tenderness, he bought me, he sought me. He knows your name, and if you don't trust him yet, I would just say this, keep listening. He's gonna give you reasons to trust him. First question, is Jesus a stranger or a shepherd that they didn't ask? And he's saying, don't treat me like a stranger here. I didn't come as a thief or a robber. No, no, instead I am a shepherd. Evidence of that is I've got sheep that listen to my voice. Second question, I think that, he's answering that they didn't ask. What does a door have to do with this? Like, we only see John 10 as the good shepherd, and yet in the midst of this, he says it and then repeats it, I am the door. So how, Jesus, are you both the shepherd and a door? I don't know, but he's gonna help us understand. So verse six, you see this, right? Verse six, we read this. This figure of speech about the shepherd and the strangers, he used with them, but they did not understand what he is saying to them. I want you to notice something. Because they thought they saw, because they were prideful, because they had preconceived notions about who they thought Jesus was, he does not waste time explaining to them who he is. Because at the end of this, they have no idea. They're going, he's a demon. Gotta have a demon in him. Demon or insane, which one is it? They have no idea, and instead he just moves on to another analogy. He doesn't go further, explain this shepherd or stranger bit. He instead goes, hey, oh, by the way, oh, you're still confused? By the way, I'm the door. I'm sorry, say what? You do what now? Oh, by the way, I'm also the door. And it all makes sense when we read verse seven through nine real quick. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. We were just talking about gatekeepers. We were just talking about strangers and thieves and robbers and shepherds. And now you're entering into the door. All right, I'm, I'm going to try and follow you here. Verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. What great promise is that in Christ? 
They will go in and out. They will be saved. They will find pasture. But for those that think they know it all, Jesus has no interest in clearing their mind or changing their mind. The religious leaders of the day used their power, and this is why he's saying, I am the door, in context of John 9. They just kicked this man out of the synagogue. They just denied access to this man for knowing Jesus. And Jesus comes back around and says, I'm the door. I'm the one that grants access or denies access to God. You have no authority. You instead, all who have gone before me are thieves and robbers. You thought I was a thief. Take a look in the mirror, my friends. I'm the door. This man has not lost access to God. Instead, he now believes in me, and I have granted him access to God. I am the door, Jesus would say. Man, that's good news. So when I was thinking about why did Jesus say I'm the door, you can picture me, I'm home alone. I'm really excited about my home alone time. Last two weeks, my wife has been teaching and exhausting herself, and I've just been sitting at home basically watching soap operas. No, I have not. (laughs) Instead, though, I have been um, staring at doors this week, which if you drove by my house and my window was open and you saw me inside just being like, how does this thing work here? Profound observations, they open and they close. I don't know if you knew that. They open and they close. And so I want to just sit down on this idea of Jesus as the door because I think it has more to say to us than what we realize. And instead of skipping from shepherd to then good shepherd, I just want to unpack what a closed door truly does because a closed door provides safety for the sheep. And an open door provides pasture for the sheep. So if he's the one that grants access or denies access, he's doing much more for the sheep than we might realize. So Jesus, as a closed door, he provides safety for us. Verse 9 would say, they will find salvation through me. Verse 9, he will be saved and, and will go in and out and find pasture. He's this access point That John 14 would say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's previewing that. Beautiful truth. And so he's providing safety and sustenance, provision and pasture. And as the closed door, this is what this picture is looking like. So in the winter time, the families would share a big pen and they would be nearby and they would hire a gatekeeper for that time. But in the summer months, the shepherds would lead their sheep out into pasture for sometimes weeks at a time. And when you are gone for that long, you are sure to find danger. So what they would do is they would meet up at night and they would, these shepherds would, would, would put all their sheep underneath a cleft of a rock, if you can kind of picture it in your mind, of this kind of overhang, and the sheep would kind of gather underneath the overhang, and then the shepherds would stand out here and lay down out here. This is all pasture out here. Who knows what's out here? They would lay down and form a barrier between who knows what out in the pasture and their sheep, which were back here. And so when he's saying, I am the door, he's not just saying, I'm the access point, but I am the thing that stands in the way between danger and safety. So he's laying out in the field and perhaps two or three other shepherds in this picture are out there. But Jesus is saying, I'm the guy that's out here in the wilderness, alone, protecting my sheep. He is protecting us. Being a shepherd was difficult, masculine, 
I'm using that word on purpose. Sometimes we think of Jesus with rainbows and butterflies and unicorns flying behind him, like purple backgrounds, and I don't know what the deal is, but I'm just telling you right now, this idea of Jesus as shepherd isn't just one of a baby you around his neck and just kind of strolling back into town like, I got him. He is standing or laying his life down for the safety of the sheep. And if you don't think that was real, you can do Google searches and you can realize in countries all over the world, there are shepherds that get mauled by lions and coyotes and wolves standing in the gap between predator and prey. And if you are a sheep of God, you are prey. We have enemy upon enemy. Jesus is the door, and as the door, he is steady, he is strong, and he is brave against your predators. And so I would just ask us to consider, he's also making mention of these thieves. In the midst of saying, I am the door, he's also talking about thieves that are present. If we read verse one, then eight through 10a, we'll see this. Verse one, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Verse eight, all who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, they will be saved and will go in, out, and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. When he's saying I am the door, there's this great comparison to thieves. I think all my life I thought something about John 10 that was incorrect. John 10, 10. I think all my life I thought John 10, 10, when it says the thief came to destroy and kill and separate, all those other things, my whole life I thought that was Satan. But the context of John 10, he's not talking about Satan. Ultimately, Satan's behind some of this stuff. But all my life I thought that, and the context is clear. The thieves in this passage are the religious leaders of the day that have come in and stolen and used power and used rule to manipulate God's flock. And we see that because this is what was prophesied of the shepherds of Israel in the Old Testament. You look at passages like Jeremiah 23 at Zechariah 11, but notably Ezekiel 34, which we did our call to worship from today. Ezekiel 34, one to four would say this. The word of the Lord came to me said, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? But you eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones. But you do not feed the sheep. The weak, you've not strengthened the sick, you've not healed. Think John 9. The injured, you've not bound up. The strayed, you've not brought back. You're in this for yourselves. The lost, you've not sought. And with force and harshness, you have ruled them. Jesus is clear in John 10 that the thieves here are not Satan himself, but religious leaders who are misguided, of whom the Old Testament says that they preach vain hope 
to God's people, as if to say, everything's gonna be fine. Don't worry about it. In Jeremiah 8, it says that they preach peace, peace, where there is no peace. They're telling all the flock of God, just smile, be happy, you're gonna be fine. Everything's gonna work out in the end. Those are the thieves. So we have to kind of look into our culture a little bit. Hang with me because we need to hear this. Gotta look into our culture and figure out what are our enemies? What really is coming against us inside the church? What are these wolves that the Bible says are dressed up? They're, they're not sheep, they're, they're wolves in sheep clothing. What are those things? I think the first thing that we think of is we think about prosperity teachers on TV. In our own city, the greatest prosperity teacher in the world. That's not an understatement, is here. Now you can sit and you can judge and you condemn him, or you can pray. Ask God to redeem him like he's redeemed you. Because imagine the impact if that man started to preach sin, forgiveness, redemption, God's kingship over all things. Imagine Prosperity, that's easy to see, right? We can see it all over. They raise money for jets, for crying out loud, from us. We can see that. That's not actually the thing. We can see that from afar and go, yeah, yeah, that ain't good. Whatever that is out there, that ain't good. We start making noise, and then the shepherd wakes up and goes, okay, I see, it's fine. He's far off. But what has snuck in amongst our ranks that we need to be aware of? That's what I want us to kind of point at. What is that gospel? gospel that we need to understand that is false is consumer Christianity. It is the greatest threat to the bride of Christ that I can know of in our culture. And if you want to know what it looks like, I'm going to paint two pictures. One, the church in general. We've done these things. I'm not condemning anyone. Let's pray for all of us. We're praying for Chris Kipp down the road. He will have the same temptation that we have had. Sometimes we're good at fending it off and other times we just seeps in and we don't even know it because consumerism at its core is the air we breathe. We just forgot that we're breathing it. And pretty soon we start to talk funny like we're breathing in helium. We just, all of a sudden that becomes normal. But consumerism, this is on, on every Facebook feed, every Instagram feed, every TV ad and it basically says this. This is the message of consumerism. You are unhappy. You've worked too hard to be this unhappy. If you would just buy our product, you'll be happy. Give yourself to this experience in this town, whether it be in Nevada or in our neighboring state of Louisiana. Just give yourself to it. I'm not talking about gambling, by the way. I'm talking about everything else that comes along with some of that, just so you know. But, but give yourself to these experiences. After all, you deserve to be happy. Haven't you earned this? Buy, your, buy yourself this. Life is hard. You have earned it. And the church has breathed this air for decades. And all of a sudden, we start to advertise our product, which usually means a Sunday morning gathering. And we call it fun and convenient and casual and relevant and exciting. In our ads, we forget to mention that it will be focused on the Redeemer who has purchased sinners from death and brought them to life. 
We've given ourselves over to entertainers for leadership, leadership gurus as preachers, professional band to create some false assurance of a sugary, false, full. We wonder why we're then hungry again by Monday at noon. This is a consumer Christianity that I would say is ultimately dangerous to us. I'm not pointing it out everywhere else. I'm pointing it out within us. Let me just say this, y'all. Friends, Jesus died for more than to put a smile on your face once a week. He died for more than to put a smile on your face once a week. That's not what this is all about. No, instead, instead, we want to be protected because Jesus is the door. He has purchased us, and we want to celebrate that as orphans now brought in to a family as people that truly were blind and now see him for who he is. See, Jesus, as the door is closed for a reason to protect us, so as the sheep, let us not bump him when we think we see something coming at the door that we might rather have and bump him to open the gate. And said, let us trust our good shepherd to deny us of some things that we may want with our appetite, but ultimately he knows are not good for us. As Jesus is the closed door, Jesus says the open door provides abundant life for the sheep. I stopped reading in verse 10 because this is what he came for. The thief, these false gospels, these leaders that have come before me, they come to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. See, the pastures of provision promise us abundant life, not just a pen life, not just a life where we are constrained on the day and on the night, but instead to be sent out into pasture where there is great freedom and great sustenance for our soul. That's what Jesus came for. But that life, it eludes us, doesn't it? Why? Because the air we breathe at consumerism, we use terms like shop churches. Some of you are shopping us today. Welcome. <laughs> we use terms like shop churches and we treat her, her, the bride of Christ. We treat her as some retail or restaurant experience where we show up, we expect to be greeted with an enthusiastic smile and promptly seated. And after which we look at the menu of options to consume a Bible study, a good worship. Is there a good band? How about the kids' ministry? We eat what we want, and then when we're satisfied, if we're satisfied with our experience, we leave a marginal, a marginal tip. And I would just say this. If you're not a believer and that's you, we're not mad. This is the air we breathe. Welcome. Come. Be a part of this place if you're not a believer. But if you are a believer... As God's, one of God's un, like trusted under shepherds, underneath chief shepherd, let me implore you as a believer, just, just can you stop? Can you stop treating this place or, or the bridge or, 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 or whatever place that you've come from or headed to next? Could you just quit treating us? Quit treating the church that's each other, that's the people of God as some restaurant or retail experience. And instead, if you want a restaurant experience, come on behind the line. Help us serve the best feast that has ever been known to man. Where the vats of God's grace are abundant. 
And the choices of meats are available to those who would just come and consume on the, the feast that God has for us. Help, us. help us make that meal. Get in the kitchen with us. Believers and non-believers alike need to be reminded of God's grace, God's forgiveness, his pursuit of us as good shepherd. Come behind the line with us. Get to work with us. Be an open door for people that need to go out, find pasture, and come in and find safety. That's Jesus as the door. That's that second question that no one was asking. The third question is this, what kind of shepherd is Jesus? Jesus continues to show that he's not a stranger, he's not a thief, he's not a hired hand now. And he says, instead, he is the good shepherd. Read with me, verses 11 through 14. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. And he flees because he is a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. Oh, but Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. So if we know anything about that culture, we know that there were hired hands that would come in and be literally people that were hired to watch the flock. And when danger came, when a mountain lion or a wolf or a coyote or whatever came near them, because they didn't own the flock, they would flee. They're out of there. They ain't having it. They're not gonna lay down their life for a bunch of sheep that are stubborn and bleeding all night, won't give the guy or girl a chance to sleep all night long, just, just all night. I'm out of here. There's danger coming, I'm out. Jesus, in contrast to that, and what he's really saying to the Jewish leaders, in contrast to you, I'm a good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. I want you to notice something because he starts to just not just say that he lays down his life for his sheep, but he says this in verse 16. Look at this, these characteristics of this good shepherd. He knows his sheep. He lays down his life for his sheep. Verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I gotta bring them also and they will listen to my voice. That's talking about you and me, Gentiles. That's talking about the diverse beautiful family of God. Because when we're just all the same, something happens in us that's not biblical. But when we are diverse, multi-varied people, we start to learn how to forgive, how to bear with one another, how to listen to each other's history and story and not make preconceived judgments on Facebook. We actually gotta know each other. We're in the same pen now with one another. And now the people that are different from me, I gotta go, okay, I don't get it, but I want to. And they gotta look at me and go, I don't get it, but I want to. That's the kingdom. That's heaven. That's all of eternity. That's the church. Verse 16, he says that. This is the characteristics of this beautiful good shepherd. He says, verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. And he's foreshadowing now in verse 18, no one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again in the charge I have received from my Father. At the end of all this, Jesus knows that his sheep will be ultimately vulnerable 
because he won't be there. And he's saying, I didn't run out on my sheep. When the day comes, and it's coming soon in John 10, when the day comes, don't think I was a hired hand. No, I was the good shepherd. I didn't disappear because I was afraid. I I left for three days because I laid down my life for my sheep. And though they are temporarily vulnerable, they will be ultimately and eternally shepherded with care. When he comes back, when I take my life up again, I will shepherd them. This great flock that I will have and bring together. So as we end, as we look to communion and remember all that Jesus has done, perhaps one of the greatest, no, not perhaps, the greatest quality that Jesus had was that he would lay down his life for another. And when we say that he laid down his life for another, it's not just his death, but his life. I think about my week, and like this week, I was really trying to head on, like go head on with some sin, and every day, it would just smack me in the mouth. Every day, it would just smack me in the mouth. I'm like, oh no, you didn't get me today, and then it would just sneak up on me, I'm like, oh man, got me again. Jesus never submitted to sin. There wasn't a day that went by, there wasn't five minutes, a minute, five seconds that went by where I wasn't entrenched in some sin, and yet for 30 plus years, he never sinned. That is a a, a great feat. And in so doing was counted worthy by the Father to die and then rise again for our sake. He who created all things created the spit that the Romans used to put shame on him. He created the thorns right, that were put on his head. He created the hands and the knuckles and the tendons and the muscles that those Roman soldiers punished him with. He created all that. And he laid himself down for the very thing that would kill him. No wonder that John 15, 13 says that no greater, there is no greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. The truest measure of love is someone else laying down their life for you or for you to lay down your life for another, for the benefit of someone else. You get nothing out of it. And Jesus does those for those who are weak, those who are weary, and those who are ultimately wandering in the desert far away from him. He comes, he seeks us, he finds us, he buys us, he speaks he says, you're mine, I own you, follow me, and we who are his sheep will follow. In a perfect mix of both tenderness to the sinners of the world and toughness towards those who are sure of their own way, Jesus gave up his life so that we might live. And at the end of this passage, there was great division in verse 19 amongst the Jews because of these words, and many of them said, he's a demon, Got to be insane. Why listen to him? And others said, these are not the words of the one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? They deemed that Jesus was one of the following, demonic, delusional, or divine. Where are you? Where are you in this journey? 
Not where you want to be, but truly based on where your life is. Are you listening to his voice? Do you really follow Jesus? Are you able to fend off the greatest temptation of the greatest thief of our day? And sift through all the craziness to just find that good shepherd. By listening, by following, and obeying. Let's pray. We love you, Father. Thank you for showing us that you haven't given up on us. For all of us in this room, you sought us. You brought us into this fold, this family of believers. Now we're in this sheep pen and it and get a little stinky sometimes, and get a little arduous along in the journey. And so I pray, Father, that you would give us the Holy Spirit to be able to bear with, with each other in this sheep pen, that we would not bite one another, that we would instead just enjoy the presence of our good shepherd who has spent all of his night protecting us, only to call us out by name and say, come on out. Come to me. I'll show you the way to greener pastures, so let me just, just follow me down this line. I'll, I'll find the good green grass. Holy Spirit, help us. Help us follow you as you guide us, as you convict us, as you counsel us. Help us not be so calloused to what you're calling us to do and how you're calling us to repent and believe and follow and take risks for Jesus. Let us be like the guy in the temple who had just received sight, didn't know all the facts about Jesus, but they knew that he changed his life. And so when the people came to him and they threatened to kick him out, he goes, you can kick me out all you want, man. Like, I can see now. Let us realize that losing our lives for the sake of displaying the work of Jesus for others has always come at a cost. We can't do both. Good shepherd, show the way. We need your help. We need your reminder that you are there. We need your reminder that your goodness goes before us. Your mercy follows us. Help us believe even in our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.